This week we learned of the immensely sad loss of one of Australia's special writing talents, Georgia Blaine, who succumbed to her battle with brain cancer. Georgia was unwell at the time of the 2016 Byron Mitres Festival, challenges she bravely charted in a regular column for the Saturday paper. Now in her memory, the festival team are pleased to be able to host this very special podcast session with her friend and fellow writer, Charlotte Wood. Georgia's novel, Between a Wolf and a Dog, struck a chord with all of us. We hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Mitres Festival. Thank you. So, my name is Charlotte Wood, as you may have heard, and I am <coughs> so delighted to welcome you to this session with Georgia Blaine about her stunning, beautiful new novel, Between a Wolf and a Dog. Um, Georgia, as I'm sure you know, is one of Australia's most prolific and best-loved writers and novelists. She has published seven books for adults, including Candelo, Closed for Winter, Too Close to Home, the story collection The Secret Lives of Men, and her acclaimed memoir, Births, Deaths and Marriages. She's also written two novels for young adults, Dark Water, and the speculative fiction young adult book Special, which amazing was released at exactly the same time earlier this year as Between a Wolf and a Dog. George has been shortlisted for a great many prizes, including the South Australian and New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, the Barbara Jeffress Award, and the Need to Be Kibble Prize. Now, some of you will know that late last year, Georgia was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer and she has been spending the year having treatment for that illness and for the first six months of this year has been has written an incredibly um, astute, acute and, and beautiful column for the Saturday paper about this experience called The Unwelcome Guest. Um, George's treatment has now finished, I'm happy to say, and so she's taking a break from that column um, although you can read it online and I highly recommend it. But today we're not going to talk about George's illness, we're going to talk about her work. Let me assure you there is no shortage of big themes to talk about in this profound, beautiful novel about families and forgiveness and life and death and betrayal and love. Now we are incredibly lucky to have Georgia with us today. This is the first time she has uh, been up to speaking since she got sick and she, you know, it's, it's a bit of an experiment to see how we go because, because um, Georgia's illness affects the language centre of her brain, um, it can affect her speech. So we're just going to see how we go and if Georgia gets tired or whatever, we're going to cut it a bit short. Yeah. But, so it's Sorry, an experiment <laughs> in stamina and um, we're just going to check in from time to time. But I know that you will all appreciate George's being with us here, so could you please give her a big Byron welcome. <laughs> so this book, which every week somebody comes up to me or emails me or phones me and says, have you read Between a Wolf and a Dog? You really have to read it. And I say, hey, I read it months ago, baby. Um, <laughs> it is so good. So, Georgia, let's... First, introduce the characters of this novel and their relationships. So, tell us who who they are and um, 
what their relationships are? Um, I think it was... I, I was looking back and thought this was the first time that I'd written a novel um, with, I suppose, an ensemble of characters rather than a central character. And there's um, Hilary, who's the sort of matriarch, who is a filmmaker. She's um, about 70. She um, does work in the sort of vein of um, the Gleaners, um, Agnes Varda kind of work. Um, and she's very fierce, she's very honest, um, she's uh, absolutely uh, dedicated to her work um, and she has recently found out that she has a terminal illness. Um, and she has two daughters. Um, she has uh, a daughter called Esther who is kind of the good girl, I suppose, and she is... Um, a family therapist, she gave up a career in the arts and she was recently um, married to Lawrence who is um, a charming, handsome drug pig, <laughs> as her sister calls him. Um, and she, he is a pollster, um, so he's a political pollster. And she has a sister called April and April has had one um, phenomenally successful album and she's never ever been able to repeat the success and she's kind of adrift in life. Um, and I think that's a lot of them. So <laughs> I think that's, that's a lot. That yep. is a lot. Um, <laughs> and each of these characters has, has you know, you, you get to know each of their particular um, circumstances right now which are... Um, a fascinating blend of love and 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 resentment and lots of things that go on in families, as you might know. Um, now the book is set in sort of two time frames. It's set over one long rainy day in Sydney, with sort of dives back into the past, a time set three years earlier. So what drove the decision to have this dual time frame? Mm. Look, I think. It was, I wanted sort of the urgency and immediacy of that um, one day, that setting, um, but I had a lot of um, backstory as well, so I wanted, rather than having the characters just remember which, um, the backstory, um, I wanted to have a few chunks with just the backstory. Um, and so it was kind of this, um, I, I suppose I was, wanting to have um, the urgency, but um, I wanted to go back to the backstory and it was um, it was kind of very structured, but it was also quite organic. So it was, yeah, both. Yeah. And the, and the three years earlier story is extremely yeah. relevant to the present yeah. story between the two sisters particularly. Um, how much did you know about these people before you began? Like, yeah. I know that you sort of... You spend a lot of time thinking about your books in advance yeah. and then you, when you're ready, you sit down. So what did you know before you started writing this time? Yeah, look, I think this was kind of a strange book for me because often I have characters in place or a setting in place um, and... Um, or a plot in place. Um, but 
this was kind of as amorphous as um, thinking that I wanted to write about life and I wanted to write about life um, from both the midpoint um, and also from um, the end point. So I wanted to um, talk about the sort of ordinary joys and sorrows that we all experience um, and that often swamp us in the midpoint of life um, but at the end they kind of are, you know, less significant or, um, you know, you have a different perspective on them. Um, so I did have the characters fairly firmly in place. The only one that I didn't have um, was Lawrence, who's the pollster. And um, I had wanted to write a book about a pollster for a long time because I had um, many, many, many years on the road with um, John Sturton, who was the Fairfax um, pollster for Nielsen. And he, so I had a sort of strange day job where I was surveying um, educational institutions all around the country. And literally for 20 years, um, John Sturton and I travelled the country and he was kind of the perfect travelling companion because we would sit in separate seats and we wouldn't have dinner. <laughs> you know? And so we could sustain this relationship for 20 years. And he was doing these surveys for us and he was doing the polls at the same time. And um, so often we would, you know, when we were talking in airports and things like that, we'd talk about the polls and we'd talk about the whole machinations of the polls. and. Um, and yeah, so I can't, so it was always fascinating to me, and I didn't, I didn't kind of create Lawrence until a couple of drafts later. He's he's nothing like John Sturton. John Sturton <laughs> is not a drug pig. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a shyster. So I'll just you know make sure that that's very clear. <laughs> um, but. Yeah, so he, he kind of came in later at a later draft. And that, we're going to come back to this question of the polls because there's a, fan, a really fascinating strand through this story about the ethics of polling, of political polling in particular, and what that does to our society. Because George's books are always bringing the political right into the personal and it's one of the hallmarks of her work and why it's so good. Um, just staying on this theme for a minute of, of the process of beginning, um, you do a lot of percolating before you begin and I know when we, we talked um, for an interview I did a while ago and you said you were telling me about a story that you'd had in your mind now that has been around in the back of your head for 15 years or something. Yeah. So can you talk about this percolation process? Um, what is it that you need to know before you begin? And at what point do you know, okay, it's ready now yeah. to start? I think it's really hard to know when a book is ready to begin. Um, and um, for example, I'm working on something now and I've had uh, you know, a whole lot of false starts and I have a you know, different sort of urgency to it now. But um, it's... Uh, it suddenly it was clear this is the, this is the way it's going to go. This is you know it's right, um, and I don't know if there's sort of a magic formula, um, and I don't know whether you're the same, but I don't. Um, it just suddenly settles on the page, and I think usually about the sort of fifteen thousand 
word mark I uh, I either know if I'm going to keep going or I've you know wound up in a cul-de-sac really and do you have you chucked books out at the 15,000 word mark I have yeah 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 that just terrifies me yeah I'm obviously a lot slower than look I don't do it often um it's really rare that I would do it um because I think also the danger is that you keep thinking of your next idea and then you um the next idea is so kind of seductive it's always and better glittering and, you know, it's unsullied totally. Um, and so I don't, I don't chuck them out lightly at all. Yeah. But I know when it's, you know, when it's going nowhere. What, what, what's the symptoms of it going nowhere, <laughs> she says in the middle of a new book? <laughs> I don't know. I think I just, I just think that there's no surprises, um, there's no, um, mm. that there's, there's just nowhere that I can go. I just feel the story all closing yeah. in, so, um, or the characters closing in. Okay. All right, let's get back to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine's totally fine. Um, um, I, I'm not at 15,000 word marks, so I'll, I'll panic when I get there. Um, Back to the book and the characters. In this book, there are quite a few artists, both successful artists like Hilary and Mori, her husband, who's now dead but was a very successful painter. And then the next generation of sort of, in inverted commas, failed artists. Um, Esther was started out as a painter but left and became a therapist. Lawrence was a musician um, and left music. And April, the songwriter sister, has been very successful early on but sort of never lived up to that early expectation. So what drew you to writing about the kind of, I hate the word failure, but the, you know, they see themselves as sort of failed artists. What drew you to writing about that? Yeah, look, I think um, uh, when you're young and you really want to have a creative career um, and um, then as you get older, you have to recognise what you've achieved or not achieved. Um, and I think most people, um, I suppose, don't have the combination of luck and fortitude and, um, and talent. I'm sure that's got something to do with it as well. Um, but to really forge a career in the arts. And I think even people who have forged a career in the arts often feel like they're failures. So I think there's, you know, very few writers here at this festival who would say, I'm a success, I've, mm. you know, done what I wanted to do. Um, and I think the failing is quite interesting. Um, and the thing that always, for me, is... Um, I suppose the thing that matters to me is knowing when to get off the wave. So you have to recognise, um, okay, I've given it my best shot, I need to get off, you know. And I've seen friends of mine who have judged it perfectly, who've got off and who have forged a new career and done really well. And I've seen other friends who've clung on desperately um, and have had a lot of misery in their lives. So um, I was, that was probably what I was exploring. Mm. It's interesting you said, you know, you need luck and fortitude and then you said, 
and maybe talent's important <laughs> as well. Uh, but I think that's a really interesting point because artists don't often talk about, or the our culture doesn't talk about really that fortitude yeah. and luck are and, more and important. And incredible um, persistence, but also I think you have to be really disciplined and really organised, and that's another thing that um, I, I think people think of artists as kind of creative, airy-fairy types, but most artists I know are incredibly disciplined about their work. Yeah. And interestingly, in this threesome of Esther and Lawrence and April, Esther's the one who you would expect to yeah. really have the fortitude. Yeah. But maybe she's had the fortitude to get out. Yeah. Yeah, I think she... So she's sort of living under the... She knows that if she's going to paint, she will probably not have the strength to live up to her father's name. Um, and so she wants to get out. It doesn't matter as much to her. So, mm. um, yeah, and we'll come back to her in a minute about what she wants from her career. Um, I, I was just reminded then that I think Raymond Carver said every artist needs a little luck and a little ambition, and too much or not enough yeah. of either can be fatal. And it's very interesting yeah. that point. Um, now, you have always written your work from very close to your own life. and But that is different from writing autobiographically. And there is always a line. Um, and I love... Uh, Hilary says on, pa on, pa on page 17... Oh, that's a note <laughs> to self. <laughs> Hilary says about her filmmaking that her work is often called autobiographical and she resists the term, hating how confining it feels. She prefers to see her work as teasing out complexities that affect others as well as herself, sometimes using her own life as a springboard but never staying there. And I wondered if this was a kind of declaration of independence for you as a writer. Yeah, look, I think I've written fiction and memoir um, and obviously I've been writing these autobiographical articles in the Saturday paper and... It <laughs> I always draw my life, so whether it's fiction or memoir, but I always have to distance myself from the writing too. So you don't want to get caught up in the drama of me, you know, the immediacy of me. Um, and I think that's the only way that you can speak to other people. Um, and for me, that's essential. I think... What's really difficult is that a lot of female writers are always um, termed, you know, their their works are kitchen sink dramas, or they, you know, they can't um, escape themselves, so they can only um, write about themselves, and they can't take on the bigger themes, the sort of politics and the, um, and I think that's incredibly confining and I think it's often really dismissive of women's work and not all women you know write in that way at all um, but um, for me so I guess I've always resisted um, just saying that you know my work is autobiographical you know there's a bit of me always and there's um, and, and definitely in my non-fiction I really really um, work to distance myself you know I think that's one of the extraordinary things about George's columns for the Saturday paper, 
that they're incredibly personal, but always looking outwards. That is, you know, it transcends any sort of... I don't know, I can't know how to explain it, but they, they're magnificent because I felt like they were about me. And how could that be? But that's, that's the skill of George's beautiful writing. Let's talk about Lawrence and the polling. Um, Lawrence, um, how much are we going to talk about what happens with Lawrence? But there is a, there is a point where Lawrence oversteps the mark um, of his interpretation of the polling results. Um, you've talked about your experience with John Sturton and travelling around the country. And one of the things Lawrence is disgusted by is how the media obsession with polling um, gives any old person in the street the power of the expert. So that, you know, political policy is made following what people want rather than what an expert can tell you. Is this disgust something that you have felt yourself? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, I think there's such a danger in um, polling because you don't have leaders who lead, you have leaders who are reactive. Um, and I think there's also, there's a danger in that you then have the rule of the mob. Um, and I also think you have a danger in that there's a huge amount of misinformation out there. So people are espousing, you know, supposed facts, um, but, uh, you know, they're not, they're not facts. Um, and I would much prefer to um, trust my experts. You know, I don't, I don't know a thing about the science of climate change, um, but I know that most of the experts are saying, or sort of 99% are saying, it is real, it is happening now. Um, and I think it's ridiculous when you have polls saying, you know, do you believe in climate change mm. or do you... Um, think climate change is happening or um, so and I think the other thing that, that polling creates its its own so often when I um, talk to John I remember he, we were traveling particularly in the years of um, Julia Gillard and there were constant constant questions about would Kevin Rudd make a better leader than Julia Gillard was he the preferred leader and that sort of creates its own media storm. So there was constant things about, is he going to challenge? Is he going to challenge, you know? Um, and there were never any questions about Abbott and Turnbull, for example. So, and it's this kind of sort of perfect storm where the media wants you to um, ask that question and then they create a story out of that question and it's sort of a loop that eats its tail mm. um, and so I found that quite disturbing um, and there's also a lot of leeway about um, you know what what angle that you take um, so yeah it was interesting for me and disturbing yep and maybe a little bit pleasurable to be able to um, tweak the results as, <laughs> as Lawrence is very tempted to do and there's a whole strand of um, a very tense storyline with that um, angle. Now, a huge theme of this book is forgiveness. 
because there is a rift between these two sisters that is deep and and serious and Hilary their mother is approaching the end of her life and sees that this is an unresolved um, a deep love that they had for each other that has been very very badly damaged um, and there's a very profound moment uh, where Hillary is listening on the she's in the car and she's listening to the radio and she hears a human rights activist who's back from Rwanda or somewhere like that talking about forgiveness and on the radio the radio host says to this woman well that's all very well but sometimes forgiveness isn't enough how do you learn to forget and the woman says the point that I'm making is that true forgiveness changes even the memory of the event. There is no longer anger attached to the recollection. I found that incredibly powerful in my own life, thinking about things that you think, well, yes, I can forgive them, but I can't forget. And that, to me, that point of the nature of the memory actually changes when you truly forgive someone is incredibly beautiful. Um, so how important in this story is forgiveness and if hurt goes both ways, does forgiveness have to go both ways? I think it's... Um, I didn't really set out to write about forgiveness, but I, I think it became a big part of the story. Um, and I think it's essential that both parties to the act have to be ready to forgive and have to be ready to move on. Um, and I think... Um, so the person who's done the wrong where my words will get really knotted. <laughs> the person who has done the wrong... Um, <laughs> help me. <laughs> that the they have to... Well, do they have to be truly sorry to be forgiven? <laughs> Are we going to get into I think I'm going to have to give up on okay, this Okay, let's forget this one. Sorry. <laughs> I've, I've made it tricky. <laughs> yeah, no, look, the person who's done the wrong thing will be boxed in a corner forever by their shame. That's, that's what I was trying mm. to say, I think. Um, and um, so unless they're ready to be forgiven, um, they won't and that be able to move on as well. And their, yeah. forgi their being forgiven has to involve change right, yeah. in them. Interesting. Um, another beautiful strand of this story is Esther's work as a therapist. So you... You see her at work and she has this sort of parade of wounded people coming through her office and you dip into their stories in a way that is very, very profound. It certainly added another layer for me and I, and I was thinking about when my mother was sick and um, very ill, she used to really love that REM song, Everybody Hurts. Yeah. And I remember... I remember we were sort of playing her Mozart and stuff yeah. and she was like, yeah, that's all right, but I really like that other song. And I thought, that's amazing. She, she needed to be connected yeah. to the idea that she wasn't alone, I think. Um, and so Esther is dealing with the ordinary sorrows of people's lives. Um, is there an element of Esther knowing how to heal things in other people but not in herself? Yeah, look, I think it's... People expect um, their therapists to be, um, you know, almost godlike and I think they're just as flawed as anyone else. Um, and 
I think that sort of parade of people who come into her office, um, I was kind of fascinated because I, as I worked in this office for 20 years, um, which I was, that was my job when I was on the road as well, but um, a lot of people were in the same job for 20 years and we went through things like, you know, death, birth, um, falling out of love, you know, all the kind of things and you present your sort of normal face to the world and you go into the office every day but there's so much going on, you know, in your life. So, uh, you know, I just left the job recently and everyone was going through the ageing parents um, mm. and there was so much sorrow but they're just their ordinary sorrows, you know, their ordinary, the stuff of life, you know. Um, and so in some, you know, we, d we do air them, but we also keep a lid on them. Mm. And um, so I think that was kind of the vein that I was trying to explore in that. And along with ordinary sorrows, there is a very beautiful focus on ordinary joys of life in this book. And as I was reading it, I wrote a note to myself said, I feel that whenever I need to be reminded of the preciousness of life, I will come back to this book. Because there is a tenderness in Hilary's ordinary experience of things like the weight of a pear in her hand and the softness of a carpet when she wriggles her toes in the carpet because she knows now how finite these, these tiny beauties and joys of experience are. Um, a, the perfect shape of a raindrop on a window, and they're not. These are not pretty things. They're they're so powerful in this book, and I think this book is a love song to the ordinary jewels of existence of, of existence, alongside the compassion for the ordinary sorrows. Um, and I know you wrote this book a long time ago, <laughs> and I wondered if you were conscious of that. That's what you were doing with. Hillary, that you were w capturing these ordinary jewels of experience? Look, I think, um, I wrote, you know, it's a very weird book for me, obviously. Um, it's, um, I wrote it a long time ago and then I kind of put it aside and then um, I had to work on it again and then I had to work on it straight after my operation. Um, and so... I think very much when, as I said, I was wanting to write about life and I was, I suppose, because I was going through the ageing parent thing um, and, um, and I was thinking about sort of end of life and, you know, how different your perspective is. And um, I have always been someone who people think of me as pessimistic and a bit of a... Um, misanthroped and things like that, but <laughs> I'm actually like very optimistic, and um, and I do. I've always been someone who, you know, I get in the shower in the morning and I think, oh, it's just so fantastic to be in the shower, or you know. And uh, but I don't. I just sort of keep it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I have been. You know, I'm a much more optimistic person who does appreciate those things. And maybe because, you know, in like most writers, I had a sort of difficult childhood. Um, and I think you become more appreciative. Um, and particularly as you get older, I think you, 
you're much more appreciative of the good stuff in life, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. I'm going to turn over to you for questions in a moment, but um, I have many more here, but we it's, the time's going so fast, I'm not going to get through all mine. But um, you write so well about flawed people, about, you know, ordinary good human beings who fuck up terribly, mm. and yet... You have this ability to turn on a pin, you know, the, the sympathy for someone like Lawrence who is kind of infuriating and then suddenly within a sentence your heart just opens to him. How, how can you write people who are selfish and narcissistic and greedy and how can you make me love them and sympathise with them? Um, look, I think it's, it's that sort of... Um I think you have to have your characters uh, well-rounded and I think no one's all good and no one's all bad and um, I think Lawrence, um, you know, he has his, his charm, um, slightly dubious charm, but he <laughs> has a certain charm. Um, and, and I think I'm always much more interested in the flaws so I'm kind of always wanting to l lift the carpet and look underneath and um, see... Uh, what people try to hide from themselves and what people try to hide from others. So that's probably my motivation when I'm trying to get into a character. Mm. So as you said, you wrote this book a long time ago um, and it has turned out to be bizarrely mm. prescient. Um, what's your relationship with this novel now? I know you, you, went, you were copy editing it as you got sick, you came out of the operation, you were back into the copy edit. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, I wonder how you feel about Hillary now. Yeah, it was very, it was very, very strange because... Um, so the tumour affected my language centre and um, it's, uh, it's... I have to kind of think about words much more than I would normally have thought about them. So normally I, you could just flow, but I have to actually think about every word now. Um, and so it was very difficult to copy edit this book straight after a craniotomy. <laughs> and fortunately I had a fantastic um, editor at Scribe and I would normally not do it, but I would just, uh, you know, I'd say to her often, can you just do it? You know, I trust you. Um, and uh, But also I wanted to immediately start writing again and I wanted to start using my language again. Um, and I think that was really important for me in terms of rehabilitation but also in terms of um, my capacity to feel it was me still, mm. you know. Um, so... I haven't read the book until... Um, well, I did read the book during the copy edit, obviously, um, and I just <laughs> changed a few medical details because I was very aware of what brain cancer was now. Um, but I didn't... Um, you know, I didn't... I still felt very much that they... They, they were sort of... Their decisions were um, part of their lives and so it wasn't me, you know... Um, and um, I haven't read it until just 
worked recently, um, just before this session, obviously, because um, I was very nervous that I wouldn't remember anyone's <laughs> name. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, a, it's just a very strange beast for me, you know, and I haven't promoted it. I haven't, you know, Charlotte's done all my wonderful promotion. <laughs> um, so, you know, I just, it's just, I've felt very, very distant from it in a weird way. So. It was interesting to me, though, that you, you didn't feel the need to change the yeah. character's responses. You didn't feel the need to change no. Hillary's response. And that, no. that speaks to the truth of the fiction and yeah. the truth of the writer that you have always been. Yeah, it was, it was very strange be. to me because I thought, oh, maybe, you know, these people would react differently to this illness now or maybe, you know, but it just felt absolutely complete. So I didn't feel that I had to change anything. Which says a lot about your work. Um, I'm going to hand over to you if you have any questions. I have plenty more if you don't. So we have oh, two stripy blue ladies <laughs> in the front. Um, thanks for coming because I've been dying to ask you questions about this book. First of all, I would love you to just speak about the title. But the second thing, because it's so beautiful, but the second thing is when I read it, I kept being stopped by the beauty of individual moments. And you know when you said about Lawrence and how you turn us on a dime from not liking him to loving him. I can remember that sentence. It's the sentence where he says um, that just when he had something in his hand, it, it was taken from him again. You know, it's, and I wanted to ask you how much you focus at sentence level, because it's so full of beautiful sentences, mm. or how much they flow out of the character's experience. Sorry to be greedy. <laughs> <laughs> so the title's Between a Wolf and a Dog, obviously, and... Um, it, the French expression actually is um, between a dog and a wolf. Um, but it's uh, my partner told um, that expression to me a long time ago and he was uh, on a shoot with a French cinematographer who'd always talk about dusk and dawn bet being between a wolf and a dog. Um, and it's apparently it's um, the time when you can't tell the difference between a wolf and a dog, so you don't know whether it's a friend approaching you or a foe. Um, I saw it more as um, the kind of, uh, at one end, the howling madness of night and, you know, the sweet benign puppy of daylight. <laughs> um, and I think most of us are in that kind of in-between stage and it's sort of the howling you know, you're, you're dealing with these ordinary sorrows that are not madness and they're not, you know, benign happiness. And most of the time that's what we're dealing with. Um, and in terms of the focusing of um, sentence level, um, it's really hard for me to remember the process of writing this book. So I... I don't, I think it was much more the characters that would direct the sentence. Um, but I'm, I'm a careful writer too, you know, I do like at least eight drafts of a book. So it, it takes me a long, I mean, I work really quickly, but it, you know, I refine and refine and refine. So, yeah. Do we have another question? Oh, that was the same question about the title. Oh, down the end. 
How much do you allow the artist characters in your book to be influenced by Australia Council, critical theory, <laughs> galleries, uh, entrepreneurs, collectors, the politics of it? Yeah. Look, I think um, in the case of Hillary, she's not influenced by that at all and she talks about... So she, she basically has her films screened overseas and they're not at all successful in Australia and she's um, had money and she doesn't have grants and she's, you know... Um, and um, Mori is probably more ego-driven um, than she, he was her husband. Um, so... But it's... It's not really about a, a book about the politics of the art world um, or the com, you know the commercial realities of the art world. It's about probably more the process of whether or not um, you have the fortitude to be yeah. an artist. Yeah. Um, and April, the songwriter, who she sort of has had record deals that have yeah. gone bung and yeah, but yeah. It's quite, yes, steer away from Australia Council grants in your <laughs> fiction, for God's sake. <laughs> um, do we have another question? We have another one from... Oh, now there's a lady here. You'll get your ch a second chance later, Elsa. First of all, thank you so much for a wonderful book. We've talked a lot this morning about characters, but one of the things that has intrigued me is the actual meteorological setting we might say since oh, we've yes. been here in the rain but rain figures so much through the book yeah and i wondered if you were seeing it as a metaphor great question well i i don't ever sort of set out you know people you you look back on your work and you think oh yes that's a metaphor but i don't think you ever um you know think in that way and i think it would be detrimental to writing for me if I thought in that way. Um, and I think in Sydney, a bit like here, there's that sort of elemental rain, you know, and it, it's particularly worse now. Um, and I um, have lived in a lot of houses that have flooded. So <laughs> <laughs> I always kind of get a bit tense around the rain. And so I think, you know, I started, I probably started on a rainy day and then I just kept writing this rainy day, so, yeah. But you're right in that there is a sort of thematic, you know... Yeah. There are, there are torrents of many kinds yeah. in this book, but it's that incredible torrential... Yeah. When I moved to the, the Sydney from the country, I couldn't believe the rain. It was yeah. just... So it's that one of those days where it just thunders down. Do we have another question or I have... One more. I thought I saw oh, a hand. Yeah, there. That was very stretching. One I think. Just there, I think. There's one over here. This will probably be our last question of the day. Um, this is about motivation. When you are thinking about writing a book, um, do you have a message that you want to promote? Say, for example, you need to have fortitude if you want to be an artist or you need to, you want people to understand what forgiveness is or something like that. Is there something that drives the novel, you know, that a message that you want to get out there to people to make the world a better place yeah. or something? Um, I don't, 
I don't have a message. Um, I have things that I want to explore. And um, I think probably as I've got older, um, I want, I suppose, my art to um, lead us to our better selves. I think that's become, I think, more important to me than it used to be. Um, and so, uh, which isn't to say that, you know, our better selves can just be, um, you know, humorous or, you know, <laughs> entertained or... Um, but I think that's... I don't know whether that's become more important for you. Um, well, I think that discovery... I think maybe one becomes more compassionate. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I'm less harsh, less judgmental, um, and um, and I think I just want people to... I, I don't even think I want people to do anything, <laughs> you know. Um, it's just that I am wanting to explore issues and I want to explore them fully and there are things that intrigue me that I want to tease out, yeah. On that beautiful note, I am going to give you a message which is buy this book, you will love it and it will lead you to your better self, I promise you. Um, please thank Georgia for coming here today.